Welcome to episode 39 of the Montana Values Podcast. In this show, we'll talk about the true crimes of Jason Matson, Montana's lost boy. Let's get right into the case with our host, Tammy Fisher. Today, we're going to talk about a case that recently hit the headlines in Montana. It's a criminal case where the criminal defendant has a history of harming people, strangers even. And it's a case that raises questions about how it is possible for violent criminals to reoffend while they're supposed to be monitored by the criminal justice system. And it's a discussion of the holes in our system, the realities of the criminal justice system, and finally, how one person's actions can harm countless others that our criminal justice system has absolutely no mechanism to help. Most importantly, this is a case that tells all of us Montanans that relying on government through the criminal justice system or welfare system to fix the ails of society is a false premise, and we must look to our communities and personally invest in our communities to address the ails of society. Montana is home to one of the 10 largest Indian tribes in the nation. The Blackfeet Indian Reservation is home to over 17,000 members of the Blackfeet Nation. The reservation was established in 1855 and is located in northwest Montana, east of Glacier National Park, and borders the Canadian province of Alberta. The reservation contains 3,000 square miles. That's twice the size of Glacier National Park and larger than the state of Delaware. About 11,000 of the enrolled tribal members live on the Blackfeet Reservation. The Blackfeet Reservation is an area of Montana that is breathtakingly beautiful, but the outer beauty hides many issues the Blackfeet Nation faces because of its isolated location. High unemployment is the norm and is typically three times that of any other place in Montana. In 2001, the Bureau of Indian Affairs reported 69% unemployment among registered members of the tribe. Now, that's a 20-year-old statistic, but for most Montanans, it doesn't appear that the statistic has changed much. What is abundantly clear is that among those who are employed, over 25% earned less than the federal poverty guideline. So even with the employed population, poverty is present. But these facts have done nothing to discount the pride, heritage, and warriors that exist within the Blackfeet tribe. The Blackfeet are resilient against all odds, and their history tells the tale. At one time, they were feared Plains warriors. The Blackfeet were one of the first Native American tribes to head west. They didn't leave their ancestral grounds in the upper Great Lakes region volitionally. They, of course, were forced out by white advancement. How the Blackfeet came to their present name is debated. However, most historians believe the name was derived from the fact that their moccasins were blackened from the long journey across the prairie to reach what would become Montana. The Blackfeet were nomadic and innovative. Before acquiring horses, dogs were used to pull the travoy as they traveled in search of bison. They were one of the first tribes to use pishkins, steep cliffs over which herds of bison were driven for harvesting. The Blackfeet are as tough as nails, known for standing their ground. Once the Blackfeet obtained horses, they vigorously broadened their territory by pushing other tribes, such as the Kootenai, Flathead, and Shoshone, west of the Continental Divide. Their hunting lands covered an enormous landscape. By the early 1800s, they were doing battle with most tribes who ventured into the northern Great Plains. 
the size of their tribe, coupled with their warrior skills, struck fear in the hearts of all who encountered them. Efforts by the U.S. government to end intertribal warfare began in 1855 with the treaty that gave the Blackfeet and their allies, the Gros Venter, much of Montana east of the northern Rocky Mountains. But as was the case with all other tribes in Montana, these lands quickly were whittled down by deception and the efforts of the U.S. government. With a gradually shrinking territory and the disappearance of the bison, the Blackfeet became further impoverished. In 1888, left with no other choices, these once proud people were forced to sign the so-called Sweetgrass Hills Treaty, an agreement that gave the Blackfeet their present reservation plus lands in the eastern side of present-day Glacier National Park. Once again, though, in 1896, the U.S. government went back on their word as they forced the tribe to cede the mountain lands that would become part of the national park for whopping $1.5 million. And if you have ever been to the area that the Blackfeet were forced to cede to the government, that area is priceless. And of course, we have government agents, known then as Indian agents, that intentionally and literally starved out the Blackfeet to extort land relinquishment to white settlers. So the U.S. government signed treaties and then proceeded to minimally follow the treaties by providing limited food supply, or they called it rations, in order to make the Blackfeet sell land to private white buyers. This is the bait and switch we continue to see litigated on a national level between many Indian nations and the federal government. This is where I take great offense when some folks say the tribes, quote, live off the government. Well, the government created this scenario. And the government created obligations that bound every American. And that's not the tribe's fault. That's the government's fault. I'm reasonably sure the tribes would have preferred no treaties and to just be left alone, but that wasn't the government's plan. Back to the Blackfeet. So now we have almost 11,000 tribal members living on this 1.5 million acre reservation where 40% of the reservation is owned by non-Indians. But the Blackfeet Reservation is the largest Indian population in Montana. Of all of Montana history, my favorite Montanan and Blackfeet member is Eloise Cobell. She fought the federal government when no one else thought she could or no one else would. And it was a David and Goliath type of fight. She never quit. And she fought for 15 years. She was smart as a whip. She was the tribal treasurer and founder of Blackfeet Nation Bank. She identified mismanagement of trust land fees by the Department of the Interior and Treasury and sought corrections in Washington. When Washington, D.C. told her to pound sand, she filed a class action lawsuit against the government in what is known or titled as Cobell versus Salazar. The government didn't settle for over 15 years, but finally in 2009, she achieved a settlement for the Blackfeet Nation in the amount of $3.4 billion. The settlement provides for payment to more than 250,000 plaintiffs, the repurchase of lands across the country for transfer to tribal management, and a scholarship fund for Native American and Alaska Native students. Ms. Cobell had the heart of a warrior. She knew she was fighting for justice, and she didn't even live to see the fruits of her labors because she died of cancer before the first checks were even issued. She was a remarkable woman, and every woman and every Montanan should look to her 
and her life for courage and faith. So against this backdrop, you know just a little about the Blackfeet. They have the features Montanans admire, fiercely independent, warriors, and innovators. But the Blackfeet Reservation has also fallen prey to the scourge of drug trafficking, violence, and poverty that is found on far too many Indian reservations in America. And of course, one of the things that the United States government failed to address in its treaties, or has poorly addressed, is how these sovereign nations operating within a nation would manage a criminal justice system. Like basic questions of, if I, as a white American, am a victim of a crime as I am passing through the reservation, who charges the criminal? The United States or the tribe? What if the criminal is white too? What if I commit a crime against an Indian on the reservation? So to say that the criminal justice system with respect to Indian tribes who have sovereign nation status within the United States is complicated, well, that's an understatement. And it's only been through a series of court cases and agreements that continue to this day that we have a criminal justice system that covers crime involving tribal members and non-tribal members on the reservation. So we are all working on the inevitable issues that arise from a poorly worded treaty from the 1800s. And we really don't have it right still. But what we do have right is the countless number of cops and prosecutors that work day in and day out trying to ensure justice for crime victims, both on and off the reservation. So here's how the U.S. government gets involved in crime on Indian reservations. Unless tribes have decided to subject their members to prosecution by the state for felonies, as have like the Confederate Salish and Kootenai tribes in Montana, the United States federal governments have jurisdiction over felony cases arising on reservation lands. But only if those felony cases were either the criminal defendant or the victim is an Indian person or both the defendant and the victim are Indian persons. Misdemeanors can be prosecuted by the feds, but rarely are and only when the criminal defendant is not an Indian person and the victim is an Indian person. Now, for major crimes, the federal government typically takes jurisdiction. The tribe also has jurisdiction over these crimes, but double jeopardy, like you would see nationally or in federal government, they don't apply. Those principles don't apply to a successive federal court prosecution. So if an offense is presented in tribal court, goes to trial, there's a conviction, Well, that case can still be prosecuted in federal court. But here's the catch. The statute of limitations is only one year for tribal charges. And oftentimes, major crimes, your violent crimes and rapes and murders, can take longer than a year to fully and completely investigate or mature. And once you blow the statute of limitations, you're done. There's no, yeah, but he's a bad guy, excuse to not file within the statute of limitations. It's a hard and fast rule in the criminal justice system. So this is why the feds prosecute most major crimes that occur on Indian reservations. In the federal system, we just have a much longer statute of limitations, so we can allow cases to mature and be fully investigated before charging a criminal. The Blackfeet Reservation has been focused on criminal justice for a very long time, and they've had a lot of struggles. The trafficking of drugs to the reservation has caused significant despair to the Blackfeet families and their community. The tribal council even went so far as to banish a particularly awful drug trafficker from the reservation. And using traditional means like banishment is a reflection of the desire of the Blackfeet to permanently rid the reservation of methamphetamine and other dangerous drugs. 
Our story highlights in part the desperation of the Blackfeet tribe to rid their reservation of methamphetamine. Jason Avery Matson grew up upon the Blackfeet Indian Reservation. Mr. Matson's addiction issues began in 2003 at the age of 13. Jason had not been sober for any length of time between 2003 and 2016. Not a weekend, not a week, and no trips to drug treatment. For 13 years, Jason was high or drunk, and he had a criminal record that reflects the same. By the time he was 23 years old, Jason Matson had an extensive tribal criminal history that included violent and substance abuse offenses, convictions for abduction, child and criminal endangerment, and DUIs. He also had suffered a head injury between the ages of 13 and 23. Against this backdrop, and by the time Mr. Matson was 26, he had also fathered five children. About midday on June 10, 2013, Jason and Jerry Matson arrived at Christopher Gobert's house to trade some car parts. Jerry Matson and Chris Gobert were lifelong friends. Jason is Jerry's younger brother. After spending some time at Gobert's house, planting some trees, eating, and generally socializing, Gobert went for a drive with the Matsons. During that drive, two girls joined the group. Jason Matson purchased alcohol, and the group went out to a spot between Browning and East Glacier to drink and swim. At some point, one of the girls dropped the bottle of alcohol in the river, which started a fight between her and the other girl. Gobert tried to break up the fight, but was unsuccessful. His efforts led to a fight between him and both Matson brothers. During the fight with the Matsons, Jason retrieved a pistol from the vehicle, and while Gobert was fighting with Jerry, Jason came up behind Gobert with the pistol. Gobert turned his head, sensing that Jason was behind him, and Jason fired the gun, shooting Gobert in the side of the neck. While driving away from the scene of the shooting, Gobert jumped out of the moving vehicle, pulling one of the girls with him and sought cover in a stand of trees. Jason continued to shoot at him and the girl while they were hiding in the stand of trees. At some point, the shooting stopped, and the Matsons drove away. Almost immediately after the Matson vehicle left the area, a police cruiser found Gobert and the girl. Unbeknownst to Gobert, a retired FBI agent was fishing nearby and saw the Matsons beating up Gobert. That retired FBI agent called the police and reported the assault and the location, explaining the sudden appearance of the police car. Gobert suffered a gunshot injury that created a substantial risk of death because the bullet narrowly missed a number of organs, including his spine. In addition, the gunshot injury has caused protracted and obvious disfigurement in that Gobert has a permanent scar from the gunshot wound on his neck and upper back. Let's focus on something here. Mr. Gobert, the victim. Mr. Gobert was lifelong friends with Jerry Matson. He was the peacemaker. He tried to stop the fight between the two girls. He had to have been shocked that Jerry would turn on him and could have never predicted that for trying to stop a fight, his best friend's brother would shoot him in the neck shot in the neck for trying to stop the fight. And then because the job wasn't done to get shot at again while you're trying to hide, Jason and his brother were charged with assault with the intent to commit murder, which is essentially attempted murder and assault with a dangerous weapon. 
But those charges weren't filed by federal prosecutors until 2016, almost three years after the events. Why? Well, because the tribal court initially took jurisdiction. They initially charged both the brothers. But the penalties for the crimes in tribal court were meaningless. They were absolute junk. Jason and his brother, they received no jail sentence and a minimal fine. This is probably how the federal prosecutor picked up the case. A victim was shot in the neck and the perpetrator was given a fine. That's an outrageous, gross injustice. The federal prosecutor in this case is Lori Suick. I know Lori from my time spent during law school summers clerking in federal court in Great Falls. Lori's a lifer. She has spent her entire career as a prosecutor, and she is tough as nails. She's smart as a whip, married to an FBI agent. She breathes, eats, and sleeps justice. I think she's been a prosecutor of reservation violent crimes for over 25 years now. So, knowing the little I know about her, I would guess she was hopping mad that the victim, Mr. Gobert, got no justice in tribal criminal court. And despite his long criminal history in tribal court, Jason Matson simply got a slap on the wrist for shooting a man point blank in the neck. So three years after Christopher is shot, Jason and his brother are finally charged in federal court. Jason, since he had never seen the inside of a jail cell for his offenses, was not in custody when he was charged. But Lori, the prosecutor, wants him to sit in jail until the trial. And the court agreed. But then Jason asked to be let out of jail. The court set a hearing to hear from Jason about his plans and where he would live if the court let him out of jail. Jason intended to live with his parents, but when the hearing was set, his parents didn't even show up. So the hearing was rescheduled. Jason's parents did make it to the next hearing and say they will watch him. So the court releases Jason to live with his parents. Well, Jason lasted a whopping week on pretrial release before violating his conditions of release. So the judge sends him back to jail to sit, awaiting trial. And there he sat for at least six months before agreeing to plead guilty to one of the offenses. Remember, this was the longest time Jason had ever been sober since he was the age of 13. And also the only time he had spent to that point in jail for shooting another human being. So prosecutor Lori Stewick does what all prosecutors do. She looks at the charges and says, Jason, plead guilty to assault with a weapon and I will drop the attempted murder charge. And Jason agrees. Jason agrees because pleading to assault with a weapon is a far less risk than the potential of being found guilty of attempted murder and assault with a weapon. Under the federal sentencing guidelines, Jason would only serve three years in prison. And we call federal prison Club Fed. Why would he only serve three years in prison for shooting someone in the neck? Because the court is forbidden from considering Jason's prior criminal history in tribal court. It can't do it. It's a rule. So despite the fact that Jason has been convicted of violent crimes, abduction, and criminal endangerment, the court cannot consider that criminal history because it occurred all in tribal court. It's an area of the law that is a black hole. It's a gap. You can be a menace on the reservation, stay in tribal court, and the federal court can't hold that against you at all in sentencing. So Jason pleads guilty to assault with a weapon, and Jason's attorney did a great job at arguing that a three-year sentence fit and fell within the federal guidelines. Jason's attorney, Mr. Henry Branham, argued to the judge, hey, my guy is an addict. All of his crimes have been inspired by addiction. And by the way, here's the interesting argument. 
Jason intended to frighten the victim and unfortunately shot him. Hmm. So sentence him for not being a nice guy and trying to frighten the victim because the shooting itself was purely accidental. Mr. Branham told the court that Jason was, quote, truly remorseful and he could be deterred from future criminal behavior if he receives drug and mental health treatment in prison. But prosecutor Lori Suick says, nah, I'm still asking for the maximum sentence of 10 years. She argues, let's not forget the victim is alive based upon a fluke occurrence. Not because Jason wanted him to be alive. Let's make the focus here on the callousness of the offense. Quote, the events of June 10th, 2013 began when a girl dropped a bottle of alcohol into a river, resulting in a fight between that girl and another, which then resulted in a second fight between Gobert and the Matsons. Gobert was fighting against both Matson brothers, yet Jason Matson escalated what to that point was a drunken brawl into something more. Matson introduced a pistol into the fight, and notably, he left the fight retrieved the pistol from his vehicle, and then returned to the fight to shoot Gobert. At the last minute before Matson fired the shot, Gobert turned his head, which caused the shot to enter the side of his neck rather than the back of his head. The assault did not end there, however. While driving from the scene, Gobert jumped out of the Matson's vehicle, taking one of the girls with him, and ran for cover in a stand of trees. Before driving away, Matson emptied the pistol by shooting at Gobert and the girl. There was nothing accidental about Matson's conduct. Gobert did not have any kind of weapon. He was fighting Matson and his brother two against one. Yet Matson did not pull the pistol out of his waistband or pocket, which would have been bad enough. He had to leave the fight to retrieve the pistol from the vehicle. That conduct cannot be characterized any other way than intentional. The only reason that Gobert was not shot in the back of the head is because he sensed Matson behind him and he turned his head. A shot to the back of the head is described in many ways, but accidental is not one of those descriptors. Then, Matson emptied the pistol into the stand of trees, shooting at Gobert and the girl before driving away, again, exemplifying intentional conduct. Chris Gobert suffered serious and painful injuries, both physical and mental. The toll that this offense has taken on him and his family is the basis for his request that the court sentence Matson to the statutory maximum of 10 years. The United States joins in that request because this offense, in the view of the United States, was an attempted murder. There is no reason why Chris Grobert is alive, other than it was simply not his time to die. End quote. With respect to Jason's addiction issues, the prosecutor argues, quote, When considering this offense, substance abuse only tells part of the story. Matson acted intentionally when he retrieved the pistol, when he aimed at the back of Gobert's head, when he shot into the stand of trees. Consequently, substance abuse cannot explain the whole story and certainly provides no excuse, end quote. So the prosecutor argues for 10 years in prison followed by three years of supervised release. And the judge sentences Jason to four years in prison, which is really less than three years in prison because Jason gets credit for the time he served in jail. That prison sentence is followed by three years of supervised release. So why this sentence? Well, remember when we talked about the Lewistown case, the judge can only sentence based upon the information before him. And here he had a 26-year-old with no criminal history because the judge cannot legally consider Jason's tribal criminal history. 
So Jason looks on paper and through the legal lens of the judge as someone who has just decided at the age of 23 while intoxicated to shoot someone accidentally in the neck. That's the lens the judge has to legally look through. Nope, it's not reality, but it's the law. And that's what judges must do, follow the law. So the prosecutor's arguments are great. She did a phenomenal job. But the judge doesn't have an attempted murder charge before him. He has an assault with a weapon charge before him. And the sentencing guidelines say that you can only give 37 to 41 months for that charge. So the judge, considering all of the circumstances that he legally can consider, sentences Jason above the guidelines, but to less than what the prosecutor requested. So who screwed up in this case? No one. Everybody followed the law, but the law doesn't account for these gaps in the criminal justice system. Could the prosecutor have pressed for a plea to the attempted murder charge? Sure. But we don't know what the strength of her case was. And judging by what was done in tribal court, the evidence must not have been overwhelming. Maybe the witnesses vanished or didn't testify consistently. Who knows? But the prosecutor did the right thing, which is to get Jason Matson into the system so that he can be monitored. And she got Mr. Gobert justice where the tribal court failed. So from this case, we learned a few things. First, judges can only sentence based upon the law and evidence before them. And the law blinded the judge to Jason Matson's lengthy criminal tribal court history. And we also learned that sentencing mandates are ineffective because the sentence given Jason fell outside of the federal guidelines. It was more than the federal sentencing guidelines told the judge to sentence. These federal guidelines used to be mandatory, giving judges no discretion. And had the judge in this case followed the guidelines, Jason Matson would have spent less than two years in prison for shooting a man in the neck. So when we want to box our judges into sentencing mandates, that always sounds like an easy solution. But in reality, we need to recognize sentencing mandates are a double-edged sword. But what we can do is ask Congress to work with the tribes to allow the law to be modified so that federal court judges can consider a tribal member's tribal court criminal history when sentencing the tribal member for crimes prosecuted in federal court. Because in this case, if the judge wasn't blinded to the tribal court records, maybe what happened next with Jason Matson could have been avoided. So what happens after sentencing in the last case? Well, Jason leaves his five kids behind and heads to federal prison. He's released after spending two and a half years in prison. So remember, the prison sentence was just under three years because Jason got credit for time spent in jail prior to sentencing. And in federal prison, you don't do quarter time like you do in Montana State Prison. You do virtually all of the time in your sentence. Get nicer amenities. It's called club fed for a reason, but much longer time is spent there. So Jason gets out of prison in October 2019. That's when he starts his supervised release, which is the federal term for probation. Well, predictably, and despite going through drug treatment in prison, Jason didn't make it long on probation. Within two months, Jason tested hot for methamphetamine, his drug of addiction. And remember, Jason started using drugs and alcohol at age 13 and never stopped. After testing hot, Jason just stopped showing up for drug tests and to meet with his probation officer. And what makes monitoring Blackfeet members on probation difficult is the probation officer works in Great Falls, which is about 150 miles away from the Blackfeet reservation. So meeting with a probation officer isn't easy. And as we discussed earlier, the Blackfeet reservation is ravaged by poverty. 
making reliable transportation a difficulty for many tribal members. By January, Jason was not living at his father's home, according to his father at least, who told the probation officer he hadn't seen him and he wasn't living with him. And that was Jason's probation-approved residence, so that's a problem. Can't find him, calls up dad, says, where's Jason? Dad says, he ain't here. So Jason has just over two months of freedom before his probation officer files a petition with the court to revoke Jason's probation and asks for a warrant for Jason's arrest. Two months. He couldn't even make it two months on probation. Clearly, prison did nothing to rehabilitate Jason. Jason evaded custody for three months and was arrested for his probation violations in March. Sadly, before he was arrested, Jason committed a series of criminal acts that left a wake of destruction. So while a warrant for his arrest was issued before it was served, Jason made more horrible decisions. And this is another hole in our system. Just because a warrant is issued, that doesn't mean that someone is arrested. It means that if law enforcement happens upon the person, they can arrest the person on the warrant. That doesn't mean that law enforcement will make every effort to go look for the person. And there are warrants all over Montana for folks that sit until law enforcement has the time to serve them. And we don't have enough law enforcement in Montana to hunt down people who have warrants because the cops are busy arresting folks that commit crimes just right in front of them on a daily basis. So is it surprising that a warrant sat for three months before Jason was arrested? Absolutely not. A warrant means nothing. It just means we're looking for you and we get to arrest you. It doesn't mean we have you in custody. So back to the case. The warrant for Jason's arrest is issued in January 2020, less than three months after Jason is released from prison. But before that warrant could be served, Jason went on a wave of destruction that would change the course of his life and that of his children, his family, and his victims forever. Between February 28th and March 3rd, 2020, Jason Madsen did exactly what his history told us he would do. On March 3, 2020, law enforcement was called to a moderately remote corner of the Blackfeet Indian Reservation after the discovery of a body. The body was partially obscured by plywood that had been placed on top and showed obvious signs of homicide. The body was identified as John Doe and family was notified of his death. An autopsy confirmed the manner of death is homicide and opined that Doe sustained blunt force injury to his back and extremities and that there was evidence on the neck consistent with strangulation or blunt force injury. The victim had been decapitated and his hands had been removed. The FBI and the Bureau of Indian Affairs began investigation of the murder. During the investigation, law enforcement identified a witness that had seen John Doe on February 28, 2020. John Doe had approached the witness and asked for a ride. He was acting spooky, but Doe told the witness that he wouldn't let anything happen to them. Doe asked to be taken to several locations and finally asked to be dropped off at Matson's trailer. Doe showed the witness a baggie with a large amount of methamphetamine in it. The witness described Doe as seeming scared. When he was dropped off at the Matson trailer, Doe walked in without knocking. Several days after Doe's body was found, agents interviewed Matson's dad at his trailer. Unbeknownst to law enforcement, Matson had been staying at the trailer. 
But remember, folks, when the probation officer checked with Jason's dad, Jason's dad denied that Matson was living there and said he wasn't living there at all. Matson had been on absconder status with United States probation at the time. The night after agents were at the trailer, Jason Matson set the trailer on fire. The room where Matson had been staying was completely destroyed. On March 10th, Jason called Blackfeet Law Enforcement Services, known as BLES, dispatch. In recorded calls, he told the dispatcher that he wanted to make a confession that he had killed Doe. When asked for clarification, he provided Doe's full name and said that he had killed him. When asked his name, the caller identified himself as Jason Matson. He told dispatch that he had a knife and a gun. While officers were responding to the residence, Matson called again and informed dispatch that he had taken a hostage. He was holed up in the bedroom of a family member's home and was holding a hostage at knife point. When asked who he was holding hostage, he identified Jane Doe by name. When asked why he was holding her hostage, Matson said it was because he killed John Doe. When asked what was going through his mind, he said that he was going to kill Jane Doe. At one point, Matson said that he liked to kill. The dispatcher could hear the hostage crying and begging to be let go. Matson held Jane Doe hostage by knife point for approximately four hours before she was able to escape. Shortly after she escaped, Jason Matson was taken into custody. So remember, by this time, Jason Matson is all of 30 years old. 30. And he has murdered someone. He has attempted to murder someone. And he has kidnapped a family member. He has also, by his tribal criminal history, abducted or kidnapped someone else, has committed child endangerment, and has committed criminal endangerment. All by the age of 30. In 17 years, his only period of sobriety was when he was in prison. And he changed the lives of his victims, his victims' families, and his own family, including his own five children. And now, judging by the plea agreement, he will spend the rest of his life in prison. So how could this happen? Did the criminal justice system fail Jason's victims? No, the criminal justice system worked exactly how it's designed. Now, the design might not be great, but we all place a lot of faith in the criminal justice system to keep communities safe and to provide justice. But the criminal justice system cannot fix the ills of society. When justice is rendered, no one feels better. You still have a crime victim. You still have multiple families devastated. You still have a crime. So justice doesn't really feel good. As a prosecutor, are you relieved when you put the bad guy in prison? Sure. But then you look at the victim and you still grieve for what the victim went through. Justice does not alleviate trauma. And we can't do anything to shore up the criminal justice system to alleviate victim trauma. We can't look to government to fix the ills of society because government isn't capable of fixing our problems. What does government do well? If you can't think of many functions government does exceptionally well, why are we always looking to the government to solve our problems? 
Do you ask electricians to fix your plumbing problems? Of course not. As a society, we look to government to solve all of our problems. But really what we're doing is we're asking electricians to fix our plumbing. What was the root cause of Jason Madsen's crimes? Why did he become a criminal? Because the government failed him? Uh, No. And we have zero sympathy for Jason Madsen. But if we're going to advance the ball in society, we got to ask, what could have happened to change his direction? And who or what is best suited to cause that change? The answer sure as shit isn't government. The answer is more likely us. Why was a 13-year-old able to become an addict? Why did he father five children before the age of 26? Why did his father not show up to court? Why did his father lie to the probation officer when he knew Jason was using drugs and living at his house? Why was violence part and parcel of Jason's life? Did his family try to intervene and help him when they knew he was an addict as a child? Why would Jason shoot, harm, and almost kill his brother's best friend over a missing bottle of alcohol? These aren't answers government can provide. Government is reactionary. It's not proactive. Community connection, family ties, they're missing, and government can't replace those connections. Our communities and our families are the fabric of our lives. If the fabric is torn, it needs mending. When we turn toward government instead of ourselves and our communities, we fail. We fail as a society. We fail as humans. And we fail as people who have a moral compass, who extend compassion to one another. Government has become a behemoth monster. It is happy to continue to grow, happy to make promises it can never keep, happy to exert control over society and fill gaps that communities and faith and tribes and families used to fill, and happy to not be held accountable. In the same way, we give up our responsibilities as humans to one another when we turn to government rather than ourselves and our communities to fix society's problems. Why do we continue to give to government what we can control and fix ourselves? Are we lazy? Do we not long for connection and community values? Would connection and community alter our kids' lives before they are tempted by the scourges in our society? How many Montanans donate money versus their time to help those less fortunate? How many Montanans will hear this discussion and think, who is fathering Jason Madsen's kids? Are they too destined for the same life as their father? What has changed in their lives to prevent them from their father's fate? Did Jason's victims have children? Who is supporting them in our communities? We can't fix Jason Matson. That die has been cast. We can try to fix a couple holes in the criminal justice system. That's for our senators and congressmen to fix. But when we peel back the layers of this onion, where are our efforts best focused to ensure the cycle of crime and addiction and poverty ends? As most Montanans know and say, nothing worth having comes easy. If we want a future better than our past, we have to stop looking to government to fix what we can fix ourselves. And yes, it's hard because the problems are complex. Eloise Cobell worked her guts out against all odds to get back what was stolen by the government from the Blackfeet Nation. 
Miss Cobell knew the government was poorly equipped to do anything. Hell, it couldn't even honor a contract or admit it was wrong or pay back the full amount that it stole. Knowing this about government, why in the world would we ask government to fix our social problems? And by God, if Miss Cobell could devote her life to getting back from the government what was rightly her tribe's, then the rest of us Montanans better start taking back from government the social issues that our families and communities are best equipped to address because there's no amount of government in the world that could have altered Jason Matson's life. But there's a whole lot of community and family that might have. Thank you for taking us with you on your journey today. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Montana Values Podcast. Become a sponsor of the show by going to our website, montanavaluespodcast.com locating the sponsor page and clicking on the donate button subscribe to the show on podbean or wherever you get your podcasts follow us on twitter and parlor our handle is at mtvalues what's your favorite montana value how do you live it write to us our email address is montanavaluespodcast at gmail.com thanks for listening and we'll see you next time <laughs>